Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Recently, I did a podcast with Mark Edel. He is a Soviet historian and war historian. We had a one-hour conversation, but unfortunately, the audio got corrupted, so only the first half of the podcast was recorded. I took the audio to some IT specialists. They did their best to retrieve the audio. Originally, it was the whole thing that was corrupted, but they retrieved the first half. The last half could not be retrieved as the code for the last half was all zeros. I am not sure what happened, but I would like to apologize to the listeners, to Mark Edel, for not being able to complete the podcast into its full extent. We had a really good one-hour conversation, but unfortunately only roughly 33 minutes of it was captured. Um, my first apologies would like to go out to Mark Edel. We had a very good conversation, as I mentioned earlier, and I would love to sit down with him again one day, and hopefully he will sit down with me one day again to have another discussion. And my second apology goes out to the listeners, as you give me a lot of support, even though it's very, very early on in my podcast days. I still appreciate all my listeners. Um, I don't know what more to say. I am very upset that this has happened. I'm very shattered. Not just because that it was corrupted, but just because the conversation that we had was so good. At least I felt it was. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that this happened. But you know what? We, you live and learn, and we've got to move on. So if you could bear with me, and hopefully you can enjoy the first half an hour of the podcast. Um, and for one final message I would like to send to Mark Edel is that hopefully we can do it again. Hopefully we can sit down and have a conversation again. And this time the whole thing will be saved. And hopefully there is no audio corruption. The IT specialist didn't even know why the audio was corrupted. But they did their very best job. And unfortunately, they couldn't save it. There's nothing anyone could do. But anyway, I digress. Thank you. I appreciate all of you and enjoy the first half an hour of this podcast. Thank you. Okay, so if you could please introduce yourself to everyone. Um, I'm Mark Edele. I'm the Hansen Professor in History at the University of Melbourne, and I'm the Deputy Dean in the Faculty of Arts. Yes, you are very handsome in that suit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the listeners can see that. <laughs> I'd like to start this podcast with an apparent quote by Joseph Stalin. 
it's one man's death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. Mm. As a historian and someone who has vast knowledge of war and Joseph Stalin himself, what are your first thoughts and feelings on this quote? Well, I guess it encapsulates um, sort of Stalin's approach to human life, I guess, um, that uh, in the course of history or in the um, in uh, the movement of history, uh, large-scale death is not uh, something he would have worried about too much um, as long as the goal, which was communism. But in the more immediate sense, the survival of the Soviet Union and the expansion of the Soviet Union uh, was... Uh, uh, was reached and therefore the the, the means were, were justified. Today we can look at Joseph Stalin as a tyrant. Now, if you go back to where Joseph Stalin came from and his upbringing, you can kind of see why he is the way he was. Um, you know, coming through uh, a religious family and then pushing that away and then getting pretty much prosecuted by his own family for doing so um, and then coming up through the Bolsheviks where he seemed to be accepted but not really because they deemed him as not really an educated man um, and then taking leadership which so as someone who was pretty much pushed down his whole life and coming through harsh upbringings can you psychologically blame him for the way he was well, I mean, blame is is the question. I mean, the, there's several things one has to say. One is, it's not he was not an untip. In, if we're thinking about the upbringing, right, of a kind of proletarian boy um, in uh, turn of the century uh, Russia, there was nothing extraordinary about his his the violence of his upbringing. Um, there wasn't you know, anything particularly extraordinary about becoming a radical either. Many, many did that. Um, and the Bolshevik Party was full of, of people like him. Um, he was extraordinarily uh, callous, though. And uh, and I think even among the... So there's, there's this split to which you've alluded between kind of the intellectual Bolsheviks who dominated the party under Lenin and then or at least until the revolution, and then uh, the kind of proletarian Bolsheviks who become much more prominent with the civil war when, when there is a large influx of people, particularly from the Red Army, who are either you know, peasants or, or working class. Um, and they, you know, they had a f they, they, their life experiences tended to be much harder than those of, of, the, of the intellectuals. Uh, who often were in exile before the revolution and so on, while the while the the proletarians often you know stayed in Russia, were underground, um, and so he's a representative of that that group of old proletarian Bolsheviks who were then reinforced by kind of new proletarian Bolsheviks in the um, in the civil war, uh, but among them he still exhibited extraordinary callousness and a willingness to 
use brutality as a as a means. Um, it's hard to see. I mean, one can actually see that in his interventions um, uh, when they decide on collectivization, which is an inherently uh, violent process, um, and decolacization, which is the, the most violent part of it. Um, he intervenes at several stages in the process um, to always push for the most radical measures. Um, so uh, same with the Great Terror. The, uh, it's hard to see how the Great Terror would have emerged without a real determined push from, from Stalin. Um, obviously, he didn't, didn't do that on his own, uh, but he enabled the, the kind of unleashing of violence. So among... Bolsheviks, he was an extraordinarily um, not not necessarily f- himself physically violent, but willing to, you know, to use violence to an, to a degree um, which was even within the Bolshevik Party quite extraordinary. Now, Vladimir Lenin, at the end of his life, kind of saw this in Stalin, correct? Well, he called him. Um, crude, rude, and, you know, unpolished. Um, I can't uh, remember the exact quotation. Uh, The context of that is twofold. One is this is Lenin essentially out of power. He's already... So what you're alluding to is is what is known as the testament, which he um, he, uh, uh, dictates shortly before his death. Uh, where he finds pretty much the entire Bolshevik leadership wanting, right? At that point, he's already out of power insofar as he had strokes and he's quite incapacitated. And so um, the Bolshevik leadership essentially sideline him because they say, you know, Comrade Lenin has to stop working because he'll kill himself um, if he continues doing that. And the man put in charge of uh, enforcing that regime was Stalin. Um, and Stalin then clashes with Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, and is is rude to her, uh, and Lenin didn't uh, appreciate that. So there's there's that aspect, the personal aspect. There's the aspect of uh, Lenin, who was you know a great supporter of Stalin, who had made him general secretary, right, which is the position from which he builds his power. Um, uh, who had been quite willing to. Uh, use extreme measures and terror during the civil war as well. Um, once he was no longer, once he no longer had the whip hand, he had time to reflect on this and suddenly uh, develops um, more democratic feelings um, than he had when he was uh, in charge of uh, of things. So that's that's the other uh, context. But he he did warn, and he 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 also then realized that this position of general secretary was very powerful, which he had created after all, right? Um, uh, so he he basically suggested that, that Stalin be removed from that post, um, and the leadership basically ignored that recommendation. Leon Trotsky, is that how mm. you pronounce his last name? Uh, that was really Stalin's first enemy, I guess you could say. Mm. Why was that? Well, there were um, there were uh, kind of personal um, 
animosities which go back at least to the Civil War or become particularly strong in the Civil War, um, where Stalin tends to disagree with the policy of using so-called bourgeois specialists in the army. So the situation of the Bolsheviks is they come into power um, and pretty much anybody with any technical expertise in this, in the bureaucracy, uh, in education, in medicine, anywhere, uh, is from, has been trained under the old regime and is not proletarian. So they, as Marxists and, you know, also as relatively realistic power politicians, they think they're not on their side. And crucially, that is, of course, true in the military. Um, the Bolsheviks fairly early on realized that kind of more romantic revolutionary notions of a, of a uh, proletarian militia um, run sort of along basis democratic um, anarchist lines uh, will not win them the civil war um, and they essentially build a conventional army, the Red Army. Uh, the only people with with very few exceptions. There are, of course, some uh, kind of proletarian uh, men who, who rose through the ranks in the First World War. Um, uh, but by and large, the, the, the people with the technical expertise in the, in the, uh, in the military, the, the army, the officer corps, um, now called commanders because there's no officers, um, but essentially they're officers, um, are kind of old regime types. And... This was both Lenin's and Trotsky's policy was to use these people uh, to control them. To you know, that's where the commissar system comes from. So you put a proletarian um, communist commissar next to the old regime officer to make sure that the old regime officer doesn't desert, doesn't do any sabotage, and does you know what he's meant to do. Um, but essentially, they recognize that there's a technical expertise these men have, which needs to be utilized. And uh, Stalin was never comfortable with that policy. He thought that was um, he, these people couldn't be trusted. Uh, and when he is sent to Tsaritsyn, the later Stalingrad, uh, to help um, defend that city, uh, which he does with an iron fist and great amount of terror, uh, he, um, you know, he, he undermines that, 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 that policy and clashes then frequently with Trotsky. So there is, there is kind of a political difference, and then there's also... Um, Personal. Yeah, there's a clash of two alpha males, I think, um, kind of going on there as well. <laughs> and, and then, of course, after Lenin dies... There's a political struggle because Trotsky looks like a very likely contender for um, for the inheritance of, of, of Lenin. And that's where Stalin being, because he was in the, he was kind of an assistant almost, right? Uh, working out um, dates and, and organizing things for things to happen, correct? And that's how he got Trotsky the wrong date for Vladimir Lenin's funeral. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, there's that story of, of whether or not Trotsky, yes. Uh, there's some controversy around that uh, around that issue, whether or not he uh, deliberately um, misled uh, Trotsky or if Trotsky decided to not come to the funeral. Uh, 
So, uh, but I think the more important part in terms of Stalin's role by the time Lenin is dead is that he's general secretary of the party, which means he organized, he, he has very uh, detailed knowledge of the cadres, right? And, 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 and can, uh, the, the rest of the leadership feels that this is sort of a bit of a boring job for a, you know, unintelligent bureaucrat. Lenin, uh, Stalin realizes um, very quickly that this is that this gives him great knowledge of the the party apparatus and who's who, and um, he uses that knowledge very very uh, successfully. Let's fast forward past Vladimir Lenin to I think it was 1937. This was during the Japan and China uh, feud that was going on. Uh, I'm not too sure uh, why they were at war at the time, um, but Russia. Uh, had a hand in helping China, correct? Yes. So Japan, um, so there's a long-standing um, kind of geopolitical uh, confrontation between Japan and first the Russian Empire and then eventually uh, the Soviet Union over influence over China, um, particularly northern China. Japan is in Manchuria since the beginning of the 30s. Uh, they occupy much of Manchuria. Uh, they have also troops elsewhere uh, in in China. And there's a clash at the Marco Polo Bridge uh, in in 37, which leads to full-scale war. That's essentially the outbreak of World War II in Asia, because there's uninterrupted fighting from then on until 1945, and then it transforms into the the Chinese Civil War. Um, in 37, Stalin decides that it is in Soviet interest to support China enough that Japan cannot win that war. Um, because if you're thinking about a map of the Soviet Union, right, there is two dangerous fronts. There's, on the one hand, the front with Europe, potentially with Poland, then with Germany, um, and then there is the Eastern Front with Japan. And Japan, of course, had been one of the intervention powers in the Civil War, so they're in the Far East during the Civil War, and they have also a, a, a very clear strategic interest in attacking the Soviet Union. So the army, the ja Japanese army, their main goal is attack of the Soviet Union. Um, Stalin was very clear that he needed to avoid a two-front war. Um, the, it would have been extremely difficult to defend the Soviet Union in the East and in the West at the same time. There's just enormous distances to deal with, which are only held together with a transit, which is a you know fairly small artery, in a way, uh, to ship troops back and forth. Um, so his sense was, let's support China enough so that they bog down Japan. Uh, so they send troops, um, small numbers of troops. So they send military specialists to train the army, uh, and they send uh, political advisors, and they send uh, um, air crew. So there's some fighting going on in terms of the air war. Uh, there's some Soviet uh, personnel involved. 
not wearing Soviet uniforms and being there sort of undercover, um, but uh, fighting and dying there. Um, but more importantly, they deliver planes, they deliver um, guns, ammunition. Um, so they, they very strongly support the, the Chinese effort uh, to resist the Japanese invasion. And that is essentially that, that strategy works. They do have to fight the Japanese. There's, there's an undeclared border war in 38-39 with two, two big battles um, where the Red Army faces off against uh, the Japanese army, the Kwantung army, um, and win in both cases. And the, the victory in that, in that border conflict, together with uh, the inability to uh, actually defeat China, um, means that Tokyo shifts away from the Soviet Union as the main goal in the war, and they shift south, which is what the, the Navy wants, um, going into the Pacific and then uh, going I eventually confronting the, the, the United States. So this was a, a, a pivotal moment of World War II and one where Stalin's strategy essentially worked. Going to 1932 when Hitler was named Chancellor. Um, 33. 33, was it? I'm sorry. Uh, 33. Um, as soon as that happened, he pretty much strengthened the military. Uh, I think it was, he went, was it three times of what they were meant to have by the uh, Treaty of Versailles? Um, now, leading up to World War Two, you had, there was this, and then basically once the Prime Minister passed away and then he named himself Führer, he invaded Czechoslovakia, and he also invaded Austria. Um, I can't remember which one was first. Uh, but all these things, were you could see where it was going. Mm. And the only one who was kind of speaking up was France. No one else in the League of Nations was saying anything. Now, if someone said something, do you think World War II could have been prevented if something was done earlier? Um well, it's not entirely true that nobody else said anything, right? I mean, the, pretty much all of Europe is trying to avoid a war, including the Soviets. Um, the, the issue was more probably that they underestimated the single-mindedness with which Hitler wanted this war. Um, and there was... There was a kind of a sense among parts of the British foreign policy establishment in particular that the Treaty of Versailles was somehow, after all, unfair to um, Germany. Um, and so the end, and there was a real reluctance to, to do anything that would lead to war, hence appeasement, right? So there... The, the trauma of World War One was extremely uh, deeply felt there. The Soviets, um, of course, were trying to bring together a coalition against the Nazis because they saw them as a as a major threat. But both sides never really trusted each other, right? The Soviets always thought that the the West, you know, the the, the capitalists were um, they were all enemies of the Soviets <laughs> after all. And the difference between fascists and um, and you know British imperialists was one of degree at best uh, or nothing. 
in, in their eyes. And of course, the, the West never trusted the Soviets. Um, so this never went anywhere. Now, could the war... I mean, it, it's always difficult with these counterfactuals, right? You mm. just don't know what would have happened if that would have happened. But um, it's pretty unlikely that a major war in Europe would have been avoided by anything by the time, you know, 34, 35 was rolling around. If at at, and, you know, Hitler is not the first one to break the, the Treaty of Versailles, right? The, the Reichswehr had, had um, secret uh, training and development facilities in the Soviet Union to develop tanks, to develop um, planes, to develop uh, um, uh, chemical weapons, all of which were, were not allowed by the Treaty of Versailles. Um, they had what was called the Black Reichswehr, so the uh, kind of an underground military force which was was able to be mobilized fairly quickly. So in order to, because the, the Treaty of Versailles restricted the number of troops they allowed to have. So they were breaking the, the treaty from the, from the beginning. Um, and the Allies could see that happening. So had they clamped down earlier on that. Um, it probably could have been avoided because the Germans wouldn't just wouldn't have had the the, uh, the weaponry they needed. Had the Soviets not cooperated with them in the 20s on weapons development, it would have, it's hard to see how they could have developed um, so quickly then the planes, the tanks uh, they needed for World War II. Uh, so on that, you know, had they sort of controlled Germany earlier um, and basically sort of enforced the Treaty of Versailles more stringently, it's possible that the war could have been avoided uh, simply because the Germans wouldn't have had the means to, to fight it. Um, but once Hitler comes into power... And once they're what they what they called at the time the danger zone. So for for the German civilian and military leadership, the years 33, 34, 35, they realized that because they were openly breaking the Treaty of Versailles and were rearming very quickly, um, they were worried that the the Allies could could simply intervene and uh, uh, and uh, occupy the country. Um, and the Germans wouldn't have had had the means to actually defend themselves mm. uh, against that at that point. But once they were through that danger zone, uh, with Hitler as as dictator of, of Germany, who was intent on this war, intent on you know taking over at least Europe, if not the world, for Germany. Um, only a major coalition could have could, as it then did, um, uh, st stop them. Um, so, yes, something could have been done much earlier. Uh, but then the question is, you know, would it have had been politically possible 
for Britain to send troops to Germany in 1933 or 1934? Would the British pu public have uh, uh, allowed that? Quite, quite possibly not. Um, so, as in all of these kind of counterfactuals, you you then you un unravel a lot of uh, a lot of things. So, in in retrospect, of course, the the whole policy of appeasement got a very bad rap because of what ended up. But the idea was, you know, it, Germany has seems to have reasonable demands. Um, if we give them that, they won't go to war because they're kind of like us. And Hitler was just not kind of like us in many ways. Well, the League of Nations was originally created to prevent another world war, correct? Um, yeah. But I don't really understand this. The United States wasn't even a part of the League of Nations. No, because um, they couldn't get it ratified in uh, in the U.S. So the the um, so the U.S., I mean, there's this long-standing um, strain in United States policy, which is isolationism, right? Uh, we don't want to be involved in the troubles of the world. Uh, we have our own, you know, our own half-continent, um, and uh, we will not uh, be drawn into wars of others. Um, and that gets, you know, it, it, and that's the, that's, the mainstream kind of policy view uh, in the U.S. for much of its history, and then it breaks open in World War One, uh, and they go in at the end of World War One and want to actually take an active role in um, in reshaping uh, Europe and reshaping the world, so it is safe for democracy. Um, but then uh, that, which is essentially a minority view. Uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy uh, thinking, um, they can't get the support they need in Congress. So um, while they were essential in setting up the League of Nations, they never join it or they never ratify the the um, uh, the, um, the treaties necessary. So so they they retreat to isolationism. And it takes really until uh, Pearl Harbor in 1941 that that's fundamentally shifted, and then that that shift remains until until today uh, that that they become a major world player. But uh, it, it 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 essentially is a return to the the kind of normal state before World War One, uh, which is isolationist. You talked about Russia. Uh, giving, I can't remember exactly what you said, but giving materials to Germany in the 1920s. Um, if Now, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who didn't know this. If you go, this was during the height of World War II, during when Germany was at its strongest. Uh, do you know Henry Ford, the yeah. creator of Ford? Now, he was actually a big supporter of Hitler and his uh, political policies, and he was actually assisting him with rubber with vehicles and money. Now, this was also at a time when the West, excuse me, the Western allies had pretty much no rubber. We were uh, very limited. Um, but Henry Ford never um, 
suffered any consequences from this. And there were also times after the war where the Western Allies recruited uh, Nazi war criminals and mm. hid them into uh, government jobs, and they also never suffered any consequences either. And it, and it makes me wonder, you know, why at that time were we pointing at Russia for being so bad when we were hiding these Nazi war criminals? Um, so I think there's two different um, parts of that story. So the, the first one um, about Ford, I mean, I don't know enough about, you know, Ford's um, deliveries and so on. So yeah. I actually know nothing about it. So I can't comment on that. But um, kind of Ford's interest in Nazism and, and 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 fascism more broadly is is not an untypical thing in the 1920s and 30s worldwide. Fascism is one of the um, one of the kind of new exciting ideas to many uh, many people around the world, as is Soviet communism, of course. And the backdrop of that is that liberal capitalism is in deep deep trouble. Um, with the uh, stock market crash uh, of 29 and then the Great Depression, it looks as if, you know, what Marxists had long uh, predicted that there would be, you know, the final crisis of capitalism was at hand, that, that looked sort of true to many. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union seemed to be, you know, booming, although that boom was, you know, in in heavy industry and so on, while, while the... Uh, Population suffered terribly. I mean, the, the living living conditions were much worse in the 30s and the 20s uh, in, in in the Soviet Union. Um, so, all around the world, people were sort of flirting with fascism, right? Um, and even supporters of liberal democracy began to think about welfare state measures as absolutely essential to... Um, so the New Deal is a, is a famous example of that, um, which was quite ad hoc kind of set of policies. But the, the, the sense that there was something wrong with the kind of small government uh, liberal political system um, was quite widespread, and a lot of people uh, were flirting with... With, with fascist ideas all over the, the place. Um, so that's that's the one context um, of the 30s. Now, the, the post-war... Um, in the post-war years, so you, you, you... One also has to, I think, appreciate what an extraordinarily strange alliance won World War II. So this is an alliance between... Um, a dictatorial uh, communist state-run economy which has an explicitly anti, anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist ideology, the Soviet Union, with the biggest empire um, of the world, the British Empire, and the biggest capitalist economy of the globe at the time, the United States. So that was always a weird, and and China, of course, as as the junior partner in that as well. But that was always kind of a weird um, uh, alliance, and quite 
naturally probably fell apart after the war. So the so that's then you get the Cold War, and in the Cold War, um, very quickly, um, after a period of of fairly stringent attempts to um, to denazify Germany in the immediate post-war years, and that's different in different occupation uh, zones. The, the probably most lenient were the, the Americans and American occupation zones, but they were still really trying to get, you know, to the to the Nazis. Um, they then, in the co- in the context of the confrontation with the Soviet Union, stop that. They just give it up, right? Um, and it's nearly a similar kind of um, a similar reaction as the Bolsheviks had to uh, to the the officer corps I'd like to add a quick piece of information right at the end here of the podcast. So as you heard, I mentioned how Henry Ford was a supporter of Hitler's Nazi regime and how the German Nazi war criminals were hidden away by Western allies and given um, government jobs and faced no prosecution. Basically, I got this information from a book called Traitors. It is a book by Frank Walker, who was a journalist. Um, I didn't get this information uh, from some anonymous online source. This was a proper journalist who wrote a book about it. I would recommend the book. The book is pretty good. I did mention this information in the last half an hour of mine and Mark Edel's podcast, but unfortunately that got cut off, which is why I'm uh, adding this here now, just so people know where I got the information. And again, I would like to apologize that it did get cut off But I thank you for listening to it anyway.